welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast about innovators in travel and transportation. Today we're joined by Greg O'Hara, the founder and senior managing director of Sitaris. Sitaris is a private equity firm that owns stakes in established and traditional travel companies like Amex GBT and Travel Leaders, invests in growth stage rounds at companies like Getaway, and takes public positions in companies like LATAM and TripAdvisor and much more. Greg is known in our industry as the consummate deal maker, so we're thrilled to have him on today. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we'd like to start all these interviews off the same way, which is for us to ask you how you got here. Well, I've got an interesting windup for that, so I'll try to I'll try to be as brief as I can. But it is it is both uh, was both uncertain and unlikely. So in uh, I grew up in a small town in Canada, um, had a decent education, and found my way to the U.S. where I started my own business. I ended up selling that business to Ross Perot, and uh, while I was at Perot, uh, I did one small airline deal, for those of you who remember, called it was out of Colorado Springs, where we did an outsourcing deal for uh, Western Pacific Airlines, and, uh, which I don't believe is an airline anymore. Um, and uh, and Sabre found me uh, around that time, having done this, because they had tried to get into the outsourcing business and couldn't, and were interested um, as to how I, uh, I was able to get an outsourcing deal done with an airline with no intellectual property when they were sitting on all kinds of intellectual property and, and couldn't seem to do that. Interestingly, I got fired from my job at Perot Systems the same day I was going to accept at Sabre, so that worked out for me. Uh, okay, I ended up <clears throat> uh, going to Sabre knowing not very much about the airline industry whatsoever, and spent several years with people like Nine and Chaco and Tom Klein and Mike Durham and Tom Cook and uh, and Steve Clampett and all kinds of different people at Sabre who were kind enough to let me um, reach into their minds and figure out whether or not I knew what I was talking about uh, over over time. I probably still don't know what I'm talking about compared to those guys, but I learned a lot from them. Uh, over the course of that time, we had done a bunch of airline outsourcing deals at Gulf Air and a bunch of other things while I was there. But the big one probably was the U.S. Airways deal that people can remember. And this happened in the late 90s. Um, around that time, they made some senior managing shifts. Uh, Mike Durham uh, left the company and new management came in. Uh, I didn't see particularly eye to eye with new management. Um, and I wasn't considered for a senior leadership role in the company. Um, maybe constructively fired from that job is what you, is what you could say. But anyway, um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't see eye to eye with senior management. Um, I thought I was running one of the better divisions in the company. So like every petulant uh, late 20s, early 30s, there was no millennials then, but I guess that's what I was at the time. Um, I, uh, I quit my job summarily and went and bought Sabre's competitor, Worldspan. And over the course of that time, uh, I raised money from Ontario, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and others. Uh, we took Worldspan, which was kind of like the fourth horse in a three-horse race. 
um, we took it and um, sorry about that. That was a, uh, I, I can't keep people from calling. I need to figure out how to do that. So that might happen a couple times while we're here. I got Apple products working for me. Anyway, um, the, uh, it was kind of like the fourth horse, uh, fourth horse in a three horse race. So we did whatever we could uh, um, to, to make that company more profitable. And we ended uh, selling it to Blackstone's travel port uh, division or portfolio company at the time. Um, and, and that worked out, that, that whole thing kind of worked out well for me because that turned me in from a operator to an investor. And I can probably tell you and everybody else that, that I am a much better investor than I ever was an operator. Uh, but having that operating experience and knowing all the mistakes I made and all the things I, I needed to do better uh, kind of helps me be better identify those operators with whom I want to do business today. So what ended up happening was I ended up going to JP Morgan Chase and working for One Equity Partners. And I made a bunch of travel investments. As you can probably remember, I, I bought Carlson Wagon Lee Travel and was the lead director there, partnering with the Carlson family. I made a small investment in Travelport. I made another investment in tra what became Travel Leaders, um, backing the management team to take that out of uh, Carlson Leisure Group, and a bunch of other travel investments. Uh, I worked there diligently, investing in travel and other things, uh, until I got a job working in the CIO's office as one of the CIOs of J.P. Morgan Chase. So if, I, I want to just remind everybody, I went from selling reservation systems and operating reservation systems to being one of the four CIOs at J.P. Morgan Chase. And I was the CIO of something called the Special Investment Group, which did things on balance sheet at J.P. Morgan. And I did that job until 2012. And then I was off maybe another form of constructive dismissal. I was offered a job that I'm not sure anyone at J.P. Morgan thought I'd take. Uh, they were right. I, I didn't really want it. And so I left and, and uh, I had a little bit of time to think about it. And I left and realized if there was an investment specialist in the travel space, they weren't very big or a lot of people didn't know about them. And there's guys who do a good job. PAR does a good job. KSL does a good job. But you got to remember, in the travel space has $7 trillion of TAM, um, uh, total addressable market. And, uh, and it probably has two or three specialists in it of probably where, where we're the biggest. Um, whereas something like FinTech or Biotech might have a trillion or two of TAM, and there's hundreds of specialists in it. So it's super competitive. And so we decided that we would go and make investments in the travel space. I took a couple of my, my colleagues from JP Morgan and hired some other people. We bought American Express GBT. We bought AMA Waterways. Uh, we made another investment in, in travel leaders for the third time. And then in 2019, uh, we closed a fund um, with about $1.7 billion in it. Uh, so we, we manage billions and billions of dollars of capital. Um, we, have, we, we do distressed investing, we do real estate investing, we do long only private equity investing, and we are having absent the last year, which has been a little bit of, of hard teeth grinding, we couldn't be having a better time. And, and we love the people that we're in business with, we love the people that we work with, and we get to choose them, right? That's one of the advantages of being an investor. You get to choose who you're in business with, and you get to choose who you work with. And so I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask some questions because that was a bit of a soliloquy to, to open the uh, podcast with. 
Love it. So yeah, I have, uh, I'll tell a quick little story. I, the first time I ever heard your name was at, it was in Miami at Focus Right, And I was at a dinner with a bunch of Amex GBT people, I think right after you had bought them. And they mentioned your name and there was some young associate, uh, I don't know whose team he was on, um, but he said something along the lines of Greg's strategy is no conflict, no interest. Yes. I, I remember him saying that and I thought that was, that was a really interesting way of thinking about things. And um, I took, taking a look at your portfolio, you've got two Latin American airlines in there with Azul and Latam. You've got, you know, multiple corporate travel, uh, you know, kind of plays in there uh, between travel leaders and, and Amic GBT as, as different as they are. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm curious how you think about where that line is how, how do you go about choosing deals and what to buy? So it, it, right now, it's as easy as it's ever been, right? Um, so can I answer, I'll answer the question in two parts, before the crisis and after the crisis. Before the crisis, um, we have an obligation of fiduciary responsibility to make money for our investors. So we're trying to choose good companies with good management teams where we have a good plan, which we call an underwriting right? Where we have a, a, a thesis behind what we're going to do. And that no conflict, no interest comes from the thesis, right? I own distributors and suppliers. So where possible, we encourage those people to work together. Now, each investment has a management team, which is rewarded solely based, well, not the, the, most of the reward comes solely based from the performance of that investment. So while we encourage people to work together, we don't dispositively force anybody to work together, right? So if you're Amex GBT and we were to own a hotel, we encourage the hotel to distribute through Amex GBT. We can encourage GBT to distribute the, for the hotel, but the commercial agreement is made by the management teams. That's that no conflict, no interest. And I've used that. So at least I know someone was listening, especially if it's a junior person. I'm, I feel great about, yeah. about that. Um, I wasn't sure um, I was going to throw him under the bus too. So no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. I use it all the time. Like I couldn't even tell you what, what meeting it was in. So we're, we're uh, so pre prior to it, we look for things that we can make a difference in where we bring operating leverage or a different way of looking at things. Right. Um, uh, during COVID, it was interesting starting in March of last year, but a year ago now, almost a year ago. Exactly. I started getting, three calls a week from worried CEOs talking about what was going to happen. Some people spotted this. Some people thought it was going to go away in 60 days. Some people thought it was going to last forever. Um, and, and most of the people were probably closer to the last 60 days camp than they were last forever. But as you know, a bunch of travel companies got out in front of this and did, um, and, and did a bunch of refinancings and whatnot. And so, uh, we, we made an investment in TripAdvisor la last year that uh, has turned out to be pretty good. Um, uh, uh, the TripAdvisor is now uh, uh, trading in, I, I don't know what it is today, but it's, uh, it was kind of 17-ish when we bought it, and today it's uh, 63. And so uh, that's done well, and we, had, we have a specific underwriting that we work with the company on. Um, uh, but after that, we started getting a lot of calls and instead of three calls a week, it went to five calls a week. Then it went to 10 calls a week. Then it went to 15 calls a week. So whether it's LATAM or Azul or Mystic or any of these other things that we've done, um, you might've seen we did Voyager de Monde la last week, which is a French luxury travel company um, or getaway, right? Um, all of these people needed capital during the crisis and 
uh, it's relatively easy to pick which, which companies are the best, right? Because most travel companies have balance sheet problems today. So correcting a balance sheet problem is relatively easy. And then putting an underwriting in effect to increase the PL is, is relatively easy. But right now, um, we've probably deployed as much capital in the last 12 months as we deployed in any other 12-month period, maybe more. Um, and, and again, we continue to like the people that we're in business with. So we, we usually pick companies where we have an idea that we don't think everybody else has. So um, almost never do we buy something and cut costs, right? The, the normal buyout funds, that's their playbook. They buy something, they cut costs. We're in the grow revenue camp, uh, grow employee base um, camp. So we're always trying to figure out how to get bigger. Uh, travel is a business that rewards scale like no other. So getting bigger is generally better. I won't say in every case better, but generally better. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kev, here. Um, take us back, if you will. You mentioned right at the, the start of your first response that you started a company and then sold it. Yeah. Um, what was that company and what was your... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. So, well, so no, this is, uh, this is the stories we're looking for. Come no on, problem. Man. This is embarrassing. So it was called Automated Time Systems. What it did is it made, it's a long story, but it made punch, car, punch clocks that, that self-tabulated. So if you took a credit card and you swiped it through a terminal, that would say what time you got to work and what time you ended. And then we got into activity-based costing. And we sold it to people like Honda and Lear Seating and Chrysler and all kinds of different people. Um, and so we wrote the code. We, uh, we installed the systems ourselves. We bought hardware and modified it so for the punch cards. Um, and I did that from about 91 to about 95. You, does that imply that you're a techie originally or did you come at it first as a, bus- as a business person? Oh, techie. I, I was an undergraduate physicist. Okay. Um, just, just to, just to tout my nerdly credentials and to make sure uh, I'm absolutely in the right camp in terms of fun versus nerd. Right. So, a couple of other things to um, to ask you about. Then, um, I don't know if I counted two or three occasions where you said you were either fired, nearly fired, didn't see eye to eye, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What would you say is it about your either your business operational style or your personality even that is that has set you at loggerheads with uh, various people that have led to you either leaving or being fired so this is interesting i don't think i've ever said this out loud before uh, other than privately um i had i was ambitious as a young guy i grew up in a small town and had i would say pretty big dreams um and uh, being good at school gave me a lot of confidence mm-hmm. and so I would tell you that um, my my personality evolved a great deal as I achieved um, success. So in other words, the things I was doing to foster that ambition Mm -hmm. were the things that were keeping me from getting the promotion or raise or 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 getting the nod to do things. Um, And so as over time. I became, I started to get, have some success. Uh, those elements of my personality that were holding me back came out just about as fast as they, as they went in. Because, um, so for instance, at Worldspan, the, the whole idea there was I wanted to be in charge of something. And I knew that if I bought it, I could put myself in charge. 
I often talk to my 15-year-old who's not much of a football player. His idea is to buy a team so he can play for the team, right? <laughs> and so it's the same. And he came up with that independently of me. So that was kind of it. And, and I, would, I would say I recognize that in many of the people who work for our portfolio companies. Some of the most talented people that we have and the most ambitious people that we have often have affectations that prevent them from getting the jobs that they want and they think they deserve. And so I think I've been somewhat successful at recognizing that in some of our most talented people. And I often take those people under my wing. It isn't really tell them how to do their job better, but tell them how others see them and, and kind of uh, cop to the mistakes I made in this specific thing so I can in this specific instance so that I can help them improve what they're doing. Um, so I'm actually curious to ask about that because I feel like th- there's obviously a balance and how much of those, those qualities are what made you successful, right? Like, and you don't want to stamp them out and like, you want to put them at the top of a company and just be like, great, go crazy. Like everyone else is gonna, you know, judge you for this, but you know, but we, we believe in you versus, the balance of, like I mean obviously sometimes those are just truly toxic personality traits well, how, how do you have that balance these aren't really toxic they're not toxic it's um, like when you do something that you're proud of try to let other people point it out instead of you pointing it out it bothers other people when you point it out but it doesn't bother other people when others point it out right it, it's just little so just low eq mainly yeah like <laughs> yeah i definitely well i don't even know if it's eq or one of the common traits that most ambitious people have right is that is that they they are very comfortable with others not believing in them Right. Because if you look at like and I'm not comparing myself in this, but if you look at someone like Steve Jobs or Michael Dallas, like they, they were immune to criticism from others and they don't really understand it because they have a unique vision for what they want to do. And so if you're that way, it doesn't really matter what other people think if you're doing a good job and you don't realize that as you get to this. I've used this example a bunch of times as you get to the senior ranks of a company, it's a little bit like a student council election, right? Nobody wants to elect a dummy or someone who's incompetent to student council, but you also have to be popular enough with people, right? That, that you recognize um, uh, that it is both a competency process and a popularity process. And you have to do both. The first time I got a 360, sorry, I, I, I know I'm not supposed So there's a, a review process that companies use that, that has your direct reports rate you, your contemporaries rate you, and senior management rate you. And it's amazing how different those ratings can be, right? So by the time I got to JP Morgan, my ratings were really high in all three categories. But when I started out as a junior manager, my, my ratings were very, very positive for the people who worked for me, a little less so for the people that were my contemporaries, and not at all good for, for the senior people other than the person I worked directly for, right? It's very interesting. And when you get that kind of feedback, you, you, want, you realize you have to modify your behavior. And so that, 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 was, the, that was really a key to unlocking a path forward for me and what I wanted to do in life. It, it's probably worth saying that your son is 
picked a slightly sexier thing to want to invest in with <laughs> than, than yeah. investing in a GDS. I mean, oh, he just wants to play football. He's prepared to do whatever <laughs> it takes. And he, he wants to know what kind of job you have to have in order to buy a football team in order right. for you can play a football team. And he hasn't quite squared that. Uh, if you have that job, you probably don't have enough time to play football at the same, the, at the the same player time. coach are over. Yeah. yeah. And I've told him, I've told him, uh, large inheritance is not in his cards, so so he he better figure out how to do both those things. How did that go? <laughs> anyway, right. So, um, you said you'd had to modify bits of your behaviour because uh, the the three sixty, um, the three sixty feedback uh, model. Yep. So, which bits did you modify, and how do they relate to the way you select companies or have select companies that you invest in over the years? So, I've gotten a lot more empathetic. Um, uh, than I ever was when I was younger, right? You know, I, I might've been kind of more Republican when I was younger in terms of the way I approached the world. And I'm probably one of the few big investors who's on the lefty side of things right now. You know, I, I don't mind paying taxes and I wish sometimes they spent, the government spent them on different things, but I don't mind paying them. Um, uh, again, I'm an immigrant to the company, to the country. So, uh, uh, I'm happy to be living here. I consider, I, I consider it a privilege to do so. Um, and so I'm, I'm a lot more empathetic. I'm certainly more thoughtful. Um, I, I, I try to be in the moment of whatever I'm doing rather than in the next moment a lot. Um, I've spent uh, probably since I was about 35, I've spent a lot more time um, caring about what I do uh, 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 I feel enormous sense of responsibility, for instance, especially during COVID, to keep as many people employed as possible. When I was younger in my career, I, I don't know whether that would have been the case. Um, but today, uh, you know, I recognize the, the difference between having a job and not having a job and having a job that pays well and getting raises and all those things. Um, those go along with my job now. I think I'm more, uh, I'm more, sensitive to all the stakeholders in what I do. And that includes governments and employees and investors and everyone. Whereas early in my career, I was probably just solely focused on the investor. Is that a combination of, uh, forgive me, getting old or aging, or is it wisdom through being in business? Probably both. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think you get mellow as you get older, right? Um, you know, I wish I had, I got married earlier. Because uh, I think that teaches you mutual forbearance better than anything else uh, in, in life. You know, I don't have to win every argument at home. Uh, and if you do, it's kind of uh, 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 a sign that um, you, you, you likely have a problem. Um, and so I, I translated that to business. That's probably a result of aging. I think having kids is a, is a great thing to give you perspective on what's important in life. Um, and... You know, in, in general, I think that um, as, I've, as I've gotten older and maybe more successful, I realize that, you know, it, what I do for a living isn't a last nickel endeavor. Like taking the last nickel off the table is not my job, right? Um, getting a good result for everybody, that's my job. One of my favorite things is what a great sector we're in for uh, ESG investing right? Um, to, we can do a lot for the environment. We can do a lot for social responsibility. These jobs we give people 
last for a long, long time and we can pay them in their market more than they would otherwise make. And so that creates a lot of uh, community pride that that does a lot for the environment. And, and that is, you know, good governance and socially responsible. Speaking of kind of, you know, when you're innovating on the environment and, and stuff, like I want to kind of segue over to like innovation in general. So I remember for the longest time that I knew about Sataris, so in my head, I had you guys logged as like the guys who own the traditional travel companies, travel leaders in Amex GBT. Yeah. And um, obviously that's that's changed a little bit recently. You're stake and trip advisor. That's, you know, obviously tech. And then uh, you, uh, you know, took out a stake and getaway. But there does seem to be a trend in that, you know, um, investing in the more traditional side of travel. And so how do you think about, you know, startups and disruptions, not to use an overused word here, um, like a lot of these, you know, bigger players are, you know, potentially in, uh, at risk of getting disrupted. How do you make sure you're disrupting yourself um, or how do you view those investments? So, so at Amex GBT, I don't know this to be true, but I think it is. I would, <clears throat> I would venture we've spent more money on technology at Amex GBT than any of the other tech companies do. Um, remember, it was interesting, people, people don't know this, but when we separated American Express Global Business Travel from American Express, American Express is a bank holding company, right? So that means when we separated it, none of our systems could touch their system. So every single system at Amex GBT is brand new, right? And, to, and our clients like McKinsey and Google and these people, they choose us because we're the most technologically advanced company. Right. We've spent hundreds and hundreds of millions. I'm not even going to tell you how much because it's embarrassing, but gobs of money on technifying that business. And if you talk to our customers, they now have up to date apps. Um, if you drop a call, for instance, and like, which oftentimes people do, let's say you're at the airport, you're trying to get someone on the line. When you call back, it routes you to the same agent you talked to before. Right. Uh, and, and believe it or not, that increases customer satisfaction. Um, you know, there's a lot of disruptive companies out there. They're all doing a good job. Um, I think, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of investments in the technology space and travel that have worked out really, really well for people. But at the end of the day, you know, Expedia is probably one of the best run companies in the world, right? It's a great company as is booking.com. But I would tell you all of my companies do a much, much better job at customer service and answering the phone than they do. Um, and the hard part is how do you do business in 140 countries? How do you do business in 32 languages? How do you answer the phone seven by 24 for all of those clients when they have a problem? Because technology is somewhat limited, right? In terms of its ability to, to solve complicated problems that don't have easy regression algorithms that you can attach to them. Right. And so yeah, I, I would say, it's easier for me to become a tech company than it is for them to become customer service focused. And so you, you, that's why all the big companies tend to use what you refer to as a traditional travel agent, right? Um, and the reason they do is because they have to service their customers. They're just too many employees doing too many crazy things uh, traveling around the globe. So um, it's, it's funny, like, I feel like I agree in concept with what you're saying, but it's easier for you guys to, you know, find tech uh, than them to, to find uh, uh, customer yeah. service. But 
I also feel like that's not that's often not true, right? Which is like theoretically it would be easier for like a bigger company in most cases to to kill a small startup. So clearly you guys have a different attitude in some way. So I guess how how do you actually like make sure that the company is, you know, has those priorities? Because I feel like, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this plenty of times like with companies probably you bought that had kind of just like, oh, we're fine doing things the way we are right now. Um, yeah. how do you do you have to fire an exec team you know, sometimes when you come in? I've spoken to a lot of big big you know of these traditional banks and GDSs who say, yeah, I'm like the only guy who really understands tech on my team. <laughs> Everyone else kind of doesn't really get it. And like, it's become clear to me sometimes like, yeah, you're probably, you probably have to clean out your exec team in order to, to make that a reality. We don't, we try to keep as many people as possible. You know, sometimes as the company grows, we outstrip an executive's ability to manage that company, right? If you think of it, sometimes the founder class of people are the best people to find a company. There's another set of managers that are good at growing the company. And there's another set of managers that are good at managing that large company stably, right? So there are different people that, that go into that. But in answer to your question, I think the easiest way to put it is, <clears throat> well, I wasn't a great operator. I'm a great board member, right? Like I, and a board's job is to advise management and be a sounding board for management on what they should or shouldn't be doing. It's not to tell them how to do it but really set the strategy for the company, make sure the company's following all the rules, make sure, for instance, we're protecting people's data, right? Like if, if you look at the measures Amex GBT goes in compliance and data protection, InfoSec, it's far beyond what any of the startups could ever afford to do. They don't have enough customers to amortize the cost of doing InfoSec and, and compliance like we do right? Uh, they, they just, they will never have that. And we made a huge investment in compliance at all of our businesses and InfoSec so we can guard your credit card information, right? If you, if you, if you pay attention to what you guys have reported about people hacking into companies and whatnot, listen, we have, we have to invest an enormous amount of money to protect your data and we're going to keep investing in, in that money. And we're going to try to stay ahead of the technology curve whenever, whenever we can to protect our, our customers and, and, and our data. Um, and that's not something that people talk about very much, right? They talk about their user interface. Um, remember that in corporate travel, a lot of the things in corporate travel are designed not to, not to enable behavior, but to inhibit it, right? If you work for a big company like <clears throat> General Motors or something like that, they have a lot of rules that you have to follow. So a lot of the tech startups are trying to enable behavior, um, give you lots of choices, um, uh, let you do whatever it is that you want to do. That works for some small businesses, but it's never going to work for businesses that have, you know, hundred million to a billion dollar uh, travel budgets. Um, they, they want us to follow the rules, right? And so we're trying to provide the best service for their employees while still following the rules. Some employees, when they want to stay at the Four Seasons, they don't like if the system doesn't let them stay at the Four Seasons, right? But, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, they also don't want to stay at, hotels that are so far from their business meeting that, you know, they have to fly there type, type of thing. So uh, it, it's a good balance uh, of how we do it. But there's, there's a lot of great companies out there with great management teams. Um, we'll see over the next 20 years if they can get to multi-billion dollars of sales or not. Um, it remains to be seen. You know, we're going to keep investing at a, at a stiffer pace than they do. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see whether or not they can catch up. But it makes business fun, right? We 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 welcome the competition because it just makes us sharper and better at our jobs. Tell us, Greg, do you have um, 
like a, a, a checklist for investments, you know, at a most basic level that these company, this company that I'm going to invest in must adhere to these five particular traits, whether it's culture, whether it's financials or anything like that, or is no, it very much case by case basis? It's, it's case by case. We have a diligence checklist, like, you know, right. like companies have had to pay their taxes and, you know, can't commit OFAC violations and all those kinds of things that we go through. But in each case, it's different. Like the investment case for something like getaway, as you can imagine, was is completely different than the investment case for VDM and what those companies do. That's what I was talking about before. That's that underwriting. In other words, do we have a connection with the management team and a common philosophy on executing against this change in the business plan? We almost never buy anything and don't do anything to it, right? Almost never. Because in travel, if you're not, like we have this uh, saying, um, activity or liquidity, right? So if we're not active in growing the company, we've run out of ideas, we'll sell it, right? We'll, we'll get liquid. Um, and if you look at our portfolio, we haven't sold anything, right? Ever. So we keep buying things and we haven't sold them because we're finding new ways of expanding the businesses. Have there been opportunities to sell them on though? And it just yeah, yeah. We, right we, get, we get offers every day. Sure. So you're always in that activity mode then, even yeah. though you might have an offer. Well, think about it. If, if I don't know if either of you have a pension, right? But we often manage money for pension plans. And really what you want to do is you, if you have, let's say, you know, real returns need to be at 6%, that'd be a great, great return in a pension plan. If we can take pension money and grow it at 33 or 35 or 40%, right? Like our, our lifetime cash on cash IRRs in this business, this team have been 44% annualized. If you're the Harvard endowment or your Princeton endowment, or you're the policeman's pension or any of these people, right? You want to grow that and compound that because that benefits your constituency in retirement. And so that's one of the, the coolest things we get to do is we make people like if we do our jobs properly, we'll make people's lives better who've worked all their lot who worked all their lives for schools or universities or hospitals. And when they retire, they're going to be able to live a better quality of life with higher distributions because of what we've done. So that's kind of like the higher purpose in, in investing people's money. But you know, what we're really trying to do is just compound returns the best we can. And the way of doing that is making acquisitions and growing the businesses. It's, it's, it's not really by selling them, but if we, if we ever run out of ideas on something, you'll see things come up for sale. Right. Of course. And um, who would you say is the, um, the chief executive of a company that you've either worked for or invested in that you've learned from the most, if you can think of one? Oh, that's a dangerous question. Can I say, how about someone I've learned a lot from rather than the most from, because I'm going to get nasty uh, emails afterwards. <laughs> I have to tell you that investing alongside Greg Maffei and John Malone at TripAdvisor mm -hmm. has been a capital markets education by fire. Those guys are really, really smart on the capital market side, issuing debt, doing tax efficient investing, um, they've got a vision for the company. Greg's a great leader. Uh, he is probably amongst the highest quality executives, in my opinion, in, in America. And so uh, I'd love to be his partner. Now, he's the chairman of this. Yeah. Um, we've had a bunch. Remember, I get to hire the chief executive. So I'd like to say all of them are awesome. Um, 
because if, if I didn't, I would have, I should have hired somebody else. So we try to find the best possible person for the job that exists. Yeah. So you mentioned something, I think it's might be a good topic to wrap up our, our, our session here today. You mentioned about how for an industry that has 7 trillion TAM, uh, we have a shockingly uh, small number of people committed to it. And I've, I've commented on this to friends before. It's like, I feel like travel is one of the industries where that has the biggest delta between what people think they understand and what they actually understand. Everyone is getting a Euro trip. Um, no one goes into healthcare saying, I've been in a hospital, therefore I know how to do your job for you. Agreed. But everyone goes into our industry and says that. Um, and I, I've thought the same thing. I mean, like I've been doing a bunch of clubhouses actually recently. Uh, and it's amazing how, you know, tech Twitter does not include travel people. Tech, you know, like yeah. tech influencers does not include travel people. We're almost completely left out of it. And I, I guess I'd, I'd wonder why. It was like, why do you think, you know, you're clearly addressing, the, uh, you know, the, addressing this by forming Sitaris in the first place. But like, why was there such an unbelievable gap? So, so the reason is, the investment record for private equity and generalist investors has been really spotty, right? Um, I won't name any, but, but if, you, if you think about it, the, there's been a few good ones, right, in, in regular way private equity, but almost all the, the investing have been in growth companies. Like those are the ones, you know, Kayak was a big home run for people. TripAdvisor was a big home run. All the things Expedia did, Expedia itself was a big home run, right? For originally for Microsoft and then for Barry Diller. And so I think there's a lot of growth investing that gets done, but the travel companies that are mature or more mature don't attract a lot of capital. Um, uh, the GDSs have, have, have had outside investment. And I think the people who invested in Amadeus did really, really well, for instance, right? But they've invested in other things that haven't done as well. So I think if you're an allocator of capital at the top of the house, right? And you look at, hey, we make a lot of money in oil and gas or a lot of money in tech or a lot of money. Travel just never makes it to the, to, to the allocation of capital phase. And so, and we see this when we buy a division of a company who's in many different things. Like, like listen, I'm not sharing anything out of school, but, but American Express has one of the world, world's greatest business models, right? And has a great return on capital in their credit card business. So if, you're, if I'm running the travel business and you're running the credit card business and we're fighting for investment capital, you're going to get it in the credit card business and I'm not going to get it in the travel business. So I think focus is one thing. Expertise is another, right? So having expertise and understand the way things work. And that, that period when I was at Sabre learning from all those people I mentioned, right? That gives me and the people who work here that have similar backgrounds, a really good basis for how things work and they're supposed to work. Oftentimes when we, when we go with, to a management team, one of the things that they're most impressed with is they don't have to play defending their lives with how things work. We understand how things work and we understand uh, the way to make them better. We're very focused on having um, interesting ideas, right? And if you're not practical about the way things work today, very difficult to be able to come up with the plan that you want to take things from the way things work today to the way things you want, want them to work, right? And you can't ignore, for instance, industry participants like, you know, IATA or ARC or GDS. Is, like the, the plumbing is there, right? You know, if, if I want 
water to come out of a specific area of my house, plumbing has to go to that area, right? Then I can put a nice sink and faucet in it, but I can't just turn on the faucet if the plumbing hasn't been run. Um, and so, uh, listen, we don't really want anybody else in their space, so just don't encourage them in any, in any case. But we're, we're, you know, we're doing a, a relatively good job. Um, we're happy with our performance, and we're going to keep uh, kind of uh, 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 we're going to keep investing more and more dollars into companies and management teams that we believe in. Funny, it remi- uh, what you said reminds me of I think one of our first couple uh, podcasts was with Aaron Gow, and I've brought up his podcast several times because he used a framing that I really love. He said there's fix it businesses and disrupt it businesses, and most of the time the travel industry has way more. Uh, fix it businesses than disrupt it ones and like you know there's uh you know i think that's another kind of uh part of that lesson so well look just just on that actually why is that though is it just because you know in a way silicon valley is is kind of shone this light on being shiny and new and disruptive and startups i mean we only need to cast our mind back 10 years ago and you couldn't go to a focus right event without and we've said this on this podcast many times you know some kind of trip planning site that's come along that's going to fix travel because everything is broken and you know lo and behold six ten months later they've they've gone down the wayside so is that an inherent problem in the kind of not the the private (coughs) equity world but in the vc world that they they always want to back the next shiny thing because they think it's going to be an airbnb or an uber and they're just not realistic well, remember, they, they only have to have success one out of 10 times. Yeah. Right. Like, like they don't really. And so if you look at ride sharing or something like that, right, which is you could argue part of the travel business or adjacent to it, at least, you know, you often had VCs that would make a bet on every ride sharing company, understanding that only one or two was going to win. Right. And they would lose all their money on other things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that, that's a philosophy that people have. I think the other thing is, most of the VCs, like you can imagine that people come into my office all the time and say, you know, if travel leaders or American Express or TripAdvisor or some big company, um, uh, would one of my companies were to just use this technology that I'm developing, I would be a billionaire, right? Uh, like th- th- that's ostensibly the pitch is if you, got, if you could get all your companies using my company, I would be a rich, rich person. Um, and, and the problem is, is sometimes... I think in the growth side, the answer that, that is they make a product, right, that doesn't have a market. I think the investing we, we do is more, more tuned to um, what is the market and what products do we have to deliver the, to that market. I think a lot of these companies are, are based on a product looking for a market, and, and the market may or may not be there. And just uh, uh, finally, then, just to go back to your comments about VCs and, you know, they'll invest in you know, one out of the 10 might be successful. It's, it's, it's something that's come up very often. I often. And I wonder, do you sense that VCs should have a little bit more kind of responsibility to those startups that they invest in? You know, you'd have to ask someone, you'd have to ask a VC investor. Like, but like, your, but your, what would be your perspective on that? Yes, because like people give up their lives to work for these VCs. They work incredibly hard, right? And to be cut off financing because you're 100 basis points less efficient than the next person seems unfortunate. But again, it's a business for for these investors. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I get the luxury of having, you know, 
tens of thousands of employees. And, you know, if I have galvanic skin response on my hands, you know, sweaty hands when I go to, when I go to bed, it's, you know, have I made the right decisions that keep these people prosperous? That's a huge weight on, on, on our, on our shoulders. You know, you want to be able to, and when I make a mistake, I bear it, especially because it, it, the downstream impact of that is big. And so um, I, I think, paying attention to all the stakeholders is great. I love the trend towards being environmentally more responsible and socially responsible because I think in the travel business that pays, you know, that, that you can get rewarded for that in a way that everything else is just momentum investing in the travel business. We can actually make more money because we can charge more for things because that's what the public wants is to be more socially responsible and more environmentally responsible. And so you'll, you'll notice a big bent for a lot of our companies. Like we're tracking people's carbon utilization and telling them what it is. We're giving them ways to buy credits, right, in, in, the, in the aftermarket. We're doing all kinds of things. It's a, probably a, a, a write-off example, but it's an easy one to, to illustrate to, to your listeners. Yeah, and it's a, lo- it's a long-term view, which is obviously sometimes uh, not that some people don't adhere to so anyway yeah. we've, we're out of time greg unfortunately okay. so uh, greg o'hara thank you so much for joining us on how i got here thank you for having me okay you've been listening to uh, how i got here that's uh, focus wire and mozio's weekly podcast when we talk to the innovators and entrepreneurs in travel tourism and hospitality if you are not a subscriber you can do all the usual places that's itunes spotify amazon alexa google Podcasts. go on there give us a review give us a rating we'd greatly appreciate it as always thank you very much for tuning in thanks again to greg and we'll see you next time thanks Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.